This podcast is brought to you by Nerd Wallet. Are you paying for your me time with just any credit card in your wallet? While you shouldn't stop treating yourself, you should start paying with a credit card that has perks. Nerd Wallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. Some even offering 10 times points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Room upgrades? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. We're all looking for ways to save, especially on medical bills. But where do you start? Unless you're a medical billing expert, finding savings can seem impossible. HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your insurance and flags errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. Saving starts with knowing where to look. Visit HealthLock.com today before you see another healthcare provider. Hi, everyone. I'm Katie Couric, and this is a bonus episode of Next Question, you lucky ducks. Huma Abedin, who I've known for many years, and Huma has her own book coming out next week, so a little shameless plug for that. Huma Abedin came to the New York stop of my recent book tour. Now, the book she's written is called Both And, A Life in Many Worlds. Now that I've finished talking about my memoir... I was really looking forward to talking to Huma about hers. And I was very happy, she was happy, to jump on a Zoom with me. Oh my God, I'm so thrilled. I'm so excited. We have a lot to talk about. (laughs) Now, if you're not familiar with Huma, that was her intention. For two decades, she's been mostly in the background as the longtime trusted aide of Hillary Clinton. She became a more public figure as the wife now ex-wife, of Congressman Anthony Weiner. We'll get into that whole scandal in a moment. Because finally, Huma is stepping out of the shadows, and she's telling her own story, which she says has been cathartic. So much of um, the process of writing the book, really for me, did turn out to be therapy. I didn't expect it to be. I wasn't sure I should tell my story. I liked being the invisible person behind you know, Hillary first and then Anthony and really my parents, because I think like you, I had, I was very close to my parents, particularly had a very close relationship with my father. And I liked, I liked my privacy. Um, I liked that space, but I think the reason, you know, for many months, this book was actually called, and my editor hates the title and everyone I've mentioned to um, hates this title. It was called Bracing. For a long time, the book was called Bracing. And the reason it was called Bracing is I felt as though two things. One, I was physically bracing behind people, behind Hillary, behind Anthony. 
But also so much of my life was bracing for the next call, the next breaking news story, the next accusation, the next crisis, the next time you have to be dragged into the FBI. And so my constant state of being was an an anxious state. And I think by putting my full truth, um, it was a catharsis that, um, you know, when I started writing the book, my researcher said the two most common articles about there in the world about Yuhuma is number one, what is wrong with her? And number two, what is she thinking? And so I chose to put exactly what I was thinking um, into this book. And I, I feel a great, and the response has been so Really, I have no better word than humbling just hearing from women and young people. Um, and I'm not just saying this, Katie, because I'm talking to you, but seeing this, you know, I work for an icon, uh, in, in, you know, in my opinion, as someone I really admire and respect professionally and personally, but to read your story and what you went through, the trailblazer that you have been, I have to say, when I read your story, and then I, I read it, and then, by the way, I listened to it, I did both is you see the struggles that people have gone through and what they've achieved, you know, for women like me. And I, I, so I'm in such a sort of positive place. I'm sure I'll be terrified next week. So it's, I think you can be both and, but I'm in, a, I'm in a pretty happy place right now. Did you feel part of this book was reclaiming your narrative? Because I think especially for someone like you and to an extent, someone like me, despite the fact that you were much more of a private person, and I was, by virtue of my job, a much more public person. Yeah. Did, did you feel like you were having to reclaim your story, a story that you felt so many other people had written or speculated about or ascribed certain character traits or emotions to your experience? Was that part of the motivation? Like, actually, this is what it was like, and this is what I was feeling. And um, wait, what was the first question they said was the bur- the question other than what, what are you thinking? Wrong, what is yeah. wrong with her? <laughs> and, and by the way, this is what is wrong with me. <laughs> <laughs> I should have put that in the book. He was 100% claiming my history. You know, my father always told me, your eyes are at the front of your head for a reason. It is to look forward. So even though my parents always wanted us to learn about history, the purpose of that was not to live in the past. It was to understand how to make decisions in the future, how to inform decisions that we were going to make. And I believe my father always thought I was going to be an author. When I I write a story in the book, when uh, I was 10, he gave me Silas Marner. He often brought me books from his travels and I didn't understand the material. But I, I looked at the introduction and I went to my father and said, why did this woman, Marianne Evans, have to use a fake, a man's name, George Eliot, to publish her book. And my father said, well, in the Victorian era, women weren't taken seriously as writers. So she had to use a man's name, but don't worry. When you grow up and you write your book, you will use your own name and everyone will take it seriously. So to me, to some degree, this book is a love letter to my father. Um, It's all the things that I could have one more conversation. I was 17 when I lost him to say, this is what I did, and I hope you're proud of me. But it is to stake claim on my my own story, my history. I did think other people were writing my story for the last 20 years, and I wanted 
to take that back. And I haven't shared this very much, but maybe because I'm having this conversation with you, one of the main reasons I decided to write the book was, uh, you know, the, the, the idea of the book was actually my friend, was Anna Wintour's idea, right? After the 2016 election, she takes me to dinner, says, you should write your book. And I thought, no way, I don't want to do it. I want to disappear. I felt so, I was so traumatized, so devastated. I said, absolutely not. And, uh, and, and then I go tell Hillary, Anna thinks I should write my book. And Hillary says, great idea. Oh my God, you have a great story. I said, no. I went to lunch with a man seven months later who was giving me professional advice about what I should do when I grow up. And I said to him, several people have suggested I write my book. And he looked at me with a straight face and said, well, why would you do that? And I said, well, it's, it's a good story. I've you know, walked alongside history. He says, you know, I don't think anyone wants to hear any more about all that scandal. And there's no way you're going to satisfactorily answer all these questions about Hillary and Anthony. I don't know why you do it. I walked out of that lunch and I was writing the book. And it was the moment that somebody suggested the story wasn't worthy, that I wasn't worthy, uh, that made me basically start putting it all down. Or that they had bought into whatever narrative was out there as factual. And they were tired of hearing about a story that they didn't really understand, appreciate or know fully. Exactly right. Yeah. Wow. I hadn't thought about it like that, but that's exactly right. Yes. Yes. Let's talk about your, your parents, because as, as you said, you lost your dad when you were just 17 years old, but both of your parents were academics. They sound as if they were extraordinary people. And you've had a, such an interesting background, um, you know, traveled all over the world. You all lived all over the world. Can you just give us the cliff notes Huma, for people who haven't read the book yet about your background. And then I want to ask you about some of the lessons you felt both your parents taught you. So I am the product of two immigrant parents, an Indian father, a Pakistani mother. They left their homes, their families, their countries. Uh, back in the 60s, they were Fulbright scholars. Um, for them, education really in itself was a religion. And they came to this country, they met at the University of Pennsylvania, fell in love, got married. They were supposed to go back home to marry people they were promised to, but neither of them did. Got married and for people who understand the history, India had just gone through this very bloody, brutal partition and, and two people from those countries could not go back and live in peace. And so they sought asylum in this country, they got it. Moved to Michigan, because the deal my parents had is they would move wherever they both got jobs at universities. And um, I was born in Kalamazoo, Michigan. But when I was two, my father was diagnosed with renal failure, and he was told he had five to 10 years to get his affairs in order. And it was one of the first lines I wrote in my book, Katie. My father was told he was dying, and so he went out and he lived. And we, two months later, we moved to Saudi Arabia, and I spent, it was meant to be a one-year sabbatical. It was 42 years ago. I, I spent my entire childhood, as you said, my parents loved exploring different cultures, countries, languages, places. And so every summer we had the privilege to travel all over the place and gave me, I felt a real understanding and appreciation and more than that, a comfort. So even though we were raised as Americans, it was so core to our identity, this notion of experiencing other places and spaces. So when I walked into the White House at 21 years old, not, not, you know, having anyone really like me surround me, I did. I think my different perspective was actually a huge advantage. Having um, said that, Huma, did you ever feel otherized? Uh, did you ever feel um, uncomfortable or different because 
you're Muslim and, you know, there weren't a ton of Muslim men or women operating in the spheres you were working in. I share the story in the book that I, you know, one summer when my father was having his kidney transplant, how we did go to school in America for a brief period. And that I did for a, a tiny bit of time experience a little bit of what it is like to feel like another. But I think because of the way we had been raised, my father, you know, always said people are like plants and a plant is only as good as its roots. And if you maintain the roots, the soil, winter storm, the plant is going to be okay. So I think that gave me a sense of confidence in who I was and my values and my belief system. You know, both my parents did this. So I didn't. And, and, I, and I, I was the child of somebody who spent his entire life exploring the other. My father, it's why later in life when my parents were attacked for being extremists, it was so shocking because their whole approach to the world was, I want to understand. I want to go and have conversations with people who don't agree with me and, and try to understand their perspective. So no, when I walked into the White House, I proudly shared my faith traditions, my cultural traditions, and I felt as though, at least in the Clinton administration, it was seen as an asset. It was, let's send her to Jordan for King Hussein's funeral. Let's have her go to Morocco. Let's have her go to Tunisia. And I share the stories about going to the Macedonian refugee camp and talking to these Kosovar Muslim women. It was, I felt very embraced and very protected um, in that community. Having said that, you do write about Michelle Bachman. And it's interesting because I so remember Huma during the 2016 campaign, a friend of mine sent me a video about you and about your family and about the Muslim Brotherhood that you describe in the book. And I said to my friend, this is ridiculous. This is made up propaganda. You shouldn't believe it and you should not share it. And I was so incensed by it uh, because I always was very upset about the the Islamophobia that penetrated the culture, particularly after 9-11. And then when I read about Michelle Bachman and the other members of Congress who were attacking you based on that video, um, it was just infuriating. But it's also, uh, you talk about how, how impotent you felt yeah. during that period, because it's almost as if methinks she doth protest too much. It's it's a damned if you don't do, damned if you don't situation. And that must have been maddening for you. Yeah, I, it, it was one of the people, when people ask me what the worst experience was in my adult life, it was that moment. Because one of the reasons I did choose to write the book is to explain what it is to be an American Muslim. I think the average American does not know. And since the book uh, uh, has been out, the number of co uh, conversations I've had with people and they'll say, oh, I, don't, I didn't know you believed in Jesus. I didn't know that you believe in Moses, that it's all, you know, the same. And so that was, it was actually a motivation uh, for writing the book and sharing uh, about a faith that I'm very proud of and is a whole way of life, as I describe. And the reason, you know, the Bachman incident and, and you know, the other members of Congress who signed on to that letter, and it wasn't even just me who was attacked. There were other very high-ranking, well-respected Muslims in, in government, um, who were attacked is that we come from a part of the world where your reputation is everything. I mean, it's sort of one bad accusation, one kind of black cloud over your, your head is a very, you know, serious, uh, a, a very serious thing. And it was so- Especially because they were impugning your parents. 
hundred percent. I, and as I write in the book, it, I, at that point had was used to this kind of, you know, sort of uh, underhanded politics, but it was my parents, it was my family and we all felt impotent. And you, you nailed it when you said she doth protest too much. It was don't say anything because you're going to elevate it. I grew up in the Clinton world of uh, politics back in the 90s was all about the, you know, 24 hour cable news and the proactive message of the day is what you drove. So if it was healthcare, that's all you talked about every day. And you didn't acknowledge the nonsense, Katie. I mean, you remember these days. It was now in 2016, 2012, we were living in the 24 second news cycle with social media and not uh, responding, basically acknowledge that was true. And it was when we went to Egypt, and I share this story in the book, I traveled with Hillary when she was Secretary of State to Egypt. We're sitting at a table and this Egyptian man looks at Hillary and says, I don't know that we trust your government because of this woman who is whispering these unpatriotic things in your ear. And Hillary, in typical Hillary fashion says, oh, you mean Huma? She's right over here, you should talk to her and clear it up. And I did have a conversation with this man, but it really showed, you know, I, I wrote this in the book. I felt as though that was an appetizer for what was to come in 2016. I mean, my community, I was just, a, you know, when Obama went to the, you know, at the White House defended me and John McCain went to the floor of the Senate. It was amazing and humbling, but it was more than just about me. It was about standing up for the principles and values upon which this country was built. I was really moved by what Senator McCain said about you and how he defended you on the floor of the Senate. Let's listen. Over the past decade, I've had the pleasure of knowing her during her long and dedicated service to Hillary Rodham Clinton, both in the United States Senate and now in the Department of State. I know Huma to be an intelligent, upstanding, hardworking, and loyal servant of our country and our government who has devoted countless days of her life to advancing the ideals of the nation she loves and looking after its most precious interests. That she has done so while maintaining her characteristic decency, warmth, and good humor is a testament to her ability to bear even the most arduous duties with poise and confidence. Put simply, Huma Abedin represents what is best about America, the daughter of immigrants, who has risen to the highest levels of our government on the basis of her substantial personal merit and her abiding commitment to the American ideals that she embodies. I am proud to know her, and I am proud, even maybe with some presumption, to call her my friend. You write about that, Huma, and that meant the world to you, didn't it? And it made me miss politicians, particularly Republicans like John McCain, so much. I feel exactly the same way. I mean, it feels as though the party is a different party than the party we we worked with in the Senate, both staff and, you know, at a principal level where you there was that decency, the honor, the respect, the, you know, standing up for values and principles that are shared values and principles. And it seems as though uh, that was a different era. I don't I don't recognize this uh, uh, the new this new brand of of politics where you can say terrible things about a, a colleague and not even be get con, you know get condemned as happened with uh, you know AOC a few weeks ago. I mean, it is shocking to me. Say terrible things and actually just lie about things. Um, do you think we'll ever get back to a more civil, responsible time in politics? Katie, I think if we don't, it's the end of our democracy. There's no way forward unless we figure out 
how to work together, respect each other. You know, this administration certainly has their hands full and is, you know, uh, been trying to correct a lot of uh, what went wrong, what went sideways um, in the last administration. It, but boy, is it hard. And I think the only way forward is forcing people to the table and having these conversations. What is the alternative? Is just yelling at each other and, you know, sticking in our corners and then nothing happens on behalf of the citizens in this country. After the break, a peek into Hillary land. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. When you have health insurance, it's easy to think, I'm covered, no worries. Well, not so fast. Remember, your out-of-pocket costs are not covered by insurance. That can be a lot of money for your family. But how do you know you're not being overbilled? It's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. Unless you're a billing expert, how do you know your medical bills are accurate? HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your insurance. When your medical claims come in, HealthLock technology reviews the claim for errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. HealthLock makes it easy to find and fix hidden errors, so you pay only what you owe. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. Bottom line, insurance alone isn't enough. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. That's HealthLock.com. Let's talk about how you joined forces in a way or how you came to work with, with Hillary Clinton. You started out as an intern in the White House in 1996. Seven months later, you accepted working uh, at for the first lady's office, unofficially known as Hillary land. What did that world look like at the time for you and what appealed to you about being a part of it? So first of all, my plan had been to become Christian Amanpour, not work in the white house and certainly not work in the Clinton administration. I, you know, I, I share in the book how as a 15 year old watching on TV as operation desert storm was unfolding I saw this woman who looked like she came from my part of the world, looking like she was this, you know, truth teller out there, this intrepid woman, and decided that's what I was going to be. 
And so when I fell into this internship, a friend of mine told me about interning for Mike McCurry. I applied for the job, assuming I too would be interning for Mike McCurry. I was placed in the first lady's policy office. And in fact, I recount how I was so surprised, like this was not my plan. And I stepped into the hallway and called my mother in, in, in with this old brick cell phone saying, mom, I didn't get the internship in the press office. How am I going to become Christian? I'm on poor. And she said, look, maybe plan A doesn't work out. Plan A, B might, you know, just try plan B. And it turned out to be pretty extraordinary. What I found is that I fell in love with the work. It felt as though it was a purpose-driven place. Lots was happening. This was a first lady traveling around the world, championing women's rights as human rights. It was a president who was, you know, um, uh, overseeing an economy. We were arguably an economy that was doing well. We were arguably the sole superpower in the world back then. It was just a different feeling of hope and possibility and optimism and and the uh, very uh, personally, uh, um, the notion of, you know, the potential peace in the Middle East was very exciting. So it felt like a cause. And, um, and once I got hooked, I got hooked and I was prepared to outwork everybody and do everything, even though I made lots of mistakes along the way. I recount a lot of those stories about losing the first lady's clothes in the East River <laughs> when we got off a helicopter. Like I didn't know what I was doing half the time, but boy, was I prepared to do the hard work. And what was it about your relationship with Hillary? I know that Philippe, the aforementioned Philippe Rains, <laughs> yes. s- describes you all as extensions of each other. Yeah. Um, a, how do you feel about that? And B, and I don't know why I'm doing a lot of A, B in this interview, but I am. And and B, how did that happen? I mean, how did you have such a Vulcan mind meld so early on? I think it's, you know, I write, I try to explain the culture of Hillary land as a place where you had professional support, where the, the conversations were things like, you know, how can we do this better? How can I help you with your resume? You should talk to my allergist. You know, how is your mother doing? And it was a culture that Hillary land um, kind of uh, just, it was the existence in Hillary land and, and Hillary land was all of these things because Hillary Clinton was all of these things. I mean, she really, this did come from the top down. It was, I believed, and I, I still, um, I still believe this to, to this day that I was lucky to work for a woman who always thought there was space for more seats at the table. She is one of those rare leaders, in my opinion, who is not, um, afraid of anyone else's intellect, not afraid that there might be somebody smarter than her at the table or in conversation with her. She welcomed those voices, but more than that, speaking about junior people like me, she saw things in, in younger people that I'm not sure we even saw in ourselves. Like I think of what I'm doing right now with you. I'm doing the thing that scares me the most. Like I, I, I'm terrified of public speaking. I'm terrified of being out in the world. I'm terrified of doing an interview, let alone with somebody of your, of your caliber, which is a dream of mine, but I'm doing it. And I, I believe that this is something that she has helped kind of build and cultivate um, throughout the years in Hillary land is that it's a club. It comes with lifetime membership. There's always going to be there for you. If I call Philippe now, as soon as we hang up, he will answer, you know, just having that kind of supportive work environment, I think is important. And also I think pretty special. How much is that? This is kind of a weird psychological question, Huma, but how much of that is based on mistrust of the outside world and developing almost a cocoon like setting where you feel it's you, this group against the world, because 
there were so many slings and arrows that were directed at you all um, through the years, Hillary in particular, you by extension, and really the entire team. And I'm curious if that in some ways made those those bonds even stronger. I think that's a really uh, interesting observation. I had not considered it until this very second, and I think it's true. I think this notion of, I share stories in the book of having people in my life who, who were prepared to tell me the hard truth, like Philippe, since we're talking about Philippe calling and telling me that the you know, New York Times was about to report that I was pregnant. I mean, and it's, and there was nothing we could do about it because it was news and it would be reported. And this, you know, the chapters in the book where I talk about, you know, being the elephant in the room, not knowing who to trust in part, I think that goes to the point that you just made, which is you, you do become um, sort of surrounded in an environment that you feel protected and safe in. Uh, and it does make you a little bit wary of the outside world. I certainly, I plead guilty to having, you know, that mindset. I don't know that it was conscious though. In the 2016 campaign, it was, it felt like everyone was so cautious and so nervous and so worried about a misstep. And um, I could not for the life of me get, get Secretary Clinton, I'll say in that way, (laughs) in this context, to do an interview with me. And I'm curious if you think that kind of insularity, if that's a word, um, might have worked against her during the campaign because it was everyone was so, so cautious about what she would do and potential mistakes she might make. Sharing the book during the 2016 campaign, actually conversations that Jennifer Palmieri, who was our communications director, Hillary's communications director, the campaign's communications director at the time, and having these experiences of going out and doing interviews and um, and even though she was rolling out a healthcare plan or she was rolling out a college plan, all the questions seemed to be about emails, as you might remember, emails right. were a sexy topic in 2016. And we absolutely, and I, uh, you know, take even my own responsibility here, absolutely would sometimes say, you know what, let's let the speech speak for itself. Let's let Hillary's healthcare message, you know, be what stays out there. And let's not, you know, add these three interviews or these two interviews. Absolutely. We did that. And uh, in part, because we predicted that the, you know, the content would, it was so hard to get outside of the email story for so much of that campaign as you well know. And then, you know, with the FBI, kind of the 11th hour, this breaking news, I mean, there was so much incoming from the outside. And, you know, I share this story in the book, even during the the convention, when Robbie, our then campaign manager, Robbie Mook says, well, we're concerned about, you know, Rush, you know, a foreign government trying to interfere in this election. And, and, and journalists on TV looking at Robbie, like, he has three heads. Like, are you suggesting? And I, of course, it turned out to be true. But in in the moment, we were. It was a cauldron of so much stuff, you know, being being thrown at us. And it is why I did spend a lot of time also talking about the challenge that sexism and misogyny played. It was we knew constantly that the feedback was in. It was regular, but it was inconsistent. I don't like her jackets. Longer, shorter. Put her in t-shirts. Put her in suits change your hair. And I, you couldn't please anybody. And I, I share the story of a Hollywood director who called and said he would give us media training, give her media training. And I said, who, who do you want Hillary to, who's her model? 
And the answer was her husband. Great. Okay. Any other ideas? Barack Obama. Amazing. Also amazing communicator. Also a man. Is there a woman? And I think in part because she has been the precedent, she has been the model in so many ways. There was no, there was no way to get that right. And, and we knew throughout that that was a challenge. Always knew that that was a challenge, that there are people who could not see a woman as commander in chief. So how did you, you know, how do you power through? I write a lot about that and covering Hillary myself and being in a position to call out sexist language and how frustrating it was for me to see just buttons upon buttons at the Republican National Convention, just, uh, you know, eviscerating Hillary in the most crude, disgusting way. And, you know, nutcrackers in the airport that are in Hillary's uh, image. And it it was very, very frustrating for me. And and I would even say to my friends who may were, maybe were not Hillary fans, like, why don't you like Hillary? And they would say it's not because she's a woman. They would give me, you know, a host of reasons. But I don't think people even understood the role of misogyny and implicit bias and cultural conditioning had in the way they were perceiving a candidate like Hillary Clinton. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And in 2008, and I, I did read that you had shared these stories and you and I shared some very similar stories, um, you know, that Tucker Carlson, me, that he could say things like she comes on TV and I want to cross my legs. Or, I, I you know, she's the kind of person, I think someone else on Fox said, who would yell at you for not taking out the garbage. Actually, I think that was Mike Barnacle. It, 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 it very well could have been. I don't even remember that one. But see, I actually feel as though in 2008, we, even us women, we did not know how to handle it. So the way we handled it is we giggled our way through, ha ha, we just assumed this was the price you had to pay to be in the game. And by 2016, it was, I would argue, at a whole different you know, level. It was attacks from all sides. And in part, not understanding that some of these stories uh, that were just outright fake news and crazy, people were believing that she was dying, that she was sick, that she had murdered people, and there were emails with lists. And the, the nonsense, uh, frankly, was not only believed, it was believed by you know, people who you and I probably might know. I mean, just reasonable, thoughtful smart people. I mean, unless we change the way we consciously and subconsciously think, unless we raise my son, who's now nine, young boys to not fear women's power, to understand and respect, like nothing, you know, in my opinion, is going to change. And Kamala Harris is is having sort of a, a difficult press run. I think pr the press is pretty lemming-like, and everybody seems to be jumping on them bandwagon. But, um, you know, do you see some parallels of how Kamala has been received with how Hillary was received? I do. I do. From the minute I, that New York Times headline, or which I'm actually not even sure if it was the Times, but the headline when she was on her way to Paris to meet with Macron and the headline was in a murky, you know, nobody understand why she's going. And then the article explains exactly why she was going. It is, in, in my opinion, she is having to endure a lot of what Hillary had to endure, the, you know, just the automatic because of her gender, even though she is a smart, accomplished. She was a first before she was vice president of the United States. She did some pretty incredible work as in her time, um, uh, both a senator and attorney general in California. 
but it's hard. And that's, and, and, and I give her and her team credit for getting out there every single day. She's got a hard set of issues uh, uh, on her agenda. Boy. I mean, thanks a lot. Giving me the border president Biden. I mean, seriously, uh, I mean, that's, that, that's tough. And uh, well, we can talk offline about this. We can, we can talk offline, but I, I have definitely found some similarities. I find it often infuriating and I wish them well. They've, they've, they've got a lot of, they had a tough job to do. When we come back, coming to terms with Anthony Weiner, and are there parallels between Huma Abedin and Monica Lewinsky? I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Today, more than ever, we're all looking for ways to save, especially on medical bills. But where do you start? Unless you're a medical billing expert, finding savings can seem impossible. And who has the time? HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your family's insurance and reviews your medical claims as they come in from your healthcare providers. Then, HealthLock's technology flags and alerts you to any errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud to help you and your family save. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save more than $130 million. Saving on medical bills starts with knowing where to look. HealthLock makes it easy to find and fix hidden medical bill errors. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. You also, obviously, Huma, talk a lot about your marriage to Anthony Weiner, and um, and I'm just from a sort of a human to human level to have so much of your personal life exposed uh, in this way and having to write about it. Um, gosh, that must have been daunting uh, because it's clear you still have a on some level have a great deal of respect for Anthony. And you talk about that in in the acknowledgments. And I'm curious what it was like to unburden yourself from that really challenging period of your life. You know, when the scandal first broke, I was not even 12 weeks pregnant. And I opened the chapter, waking up at Buckingham Palace. We didn't just live a good life. We lived a perfect life. And I... Um, I was with the man that I was desperately in love with. He was my first love. He was the first man I'd ever been with. He was my first Valentine's date. 
And so I spent a lot of time not understanding. As somebody who her whole life I've exuded control, I exert so much control in my life, to be married to somebody who could not control his behavior, I didn't get. It was in the, you know, the first year or two after the, you know, Anthony had to resign. I thought, well, you could just stop. Of course you could just stop like one day. And it was years of therapy and going to many different therapists, understanding this behavior as a mental health challenge, as a compulsion, and eventually as an addiction is something that he could not, you know, get, as I learned in, you know, from our therapist that, you know, when you are in the throes of addictive behavior, you do things and say things that when you are in your normal state of mind, you would never even consider. But it took me a very long time, Katie, to understand that. And because I feel as though this is a connection I have made with many people, mostly women, but just with people out in the world who find themselves in the me situation. How do I deal? When do I leave? When does it stop hurting? You know, when, what, how do I manage with my, with my child? And from day one, as a person who did not have a choice about when she lost her father, knowing I was carrying his child, I really wanted my son to have a chance, a, a shot at having a, a home with two parents. That was very important to me. And then I just tried to fix things. I mean, this is something women just try to do. I tried to fix things at the beginning and then realized I, you know, I couldn't and, 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 and made the right choice for me, but he's going to be in my life forever because of Jordan. So we have to figure out how to deal with each other. What is it that makes someone seek this behavior that is so incredibly risky and can destroy your life personally and professionally? You know, I, I, I'm always careful about how I talk about Anthony's, you know, mental health and his, you know, his, uh, his behavior, because that's his story to tell. And I really try to explain it and how it affected me. But to me, it's, it, it was, you know, the minute he started receiving, you know, through all these messages and emails and social media, all this affirmative, encouraging, you know, uh, kind of feedback he yearned for it more. And I think it just, it, you know, I, I found, and as I share in the book, it actually got worse over time. His behavior escalated, actually. It's almost like when you are on opioids and you need yeah. more and more yes. and more to achieve that high or feeling of, of well-being. Exactly right, Katie. Exactly right. It, it is, it is, if you, as you read the story, it's that, yes, it, how does somebody lose everything? their job, their family, their reputation, and then fall back into the exact same behavior. That's not behavior one can control. And that's not rational. That's not somebody who's in their rational mind. But I, as the victim, really, I responded at the beginning of let's just fix it and having a lot of anger. And I really resented him. We lost so much of our lives. We lost friends. I mean, I share the story of, I was the person who walked in the room and people stopped talking. I was asked not to go back to a food bank, asked not to go to parties because we were distraction, you know, reminded people of immoral behavior, all of these things. Those that does something to you. I mean, what it did to my sense of self-worth and security. I mean, in fact, I felt as though after the first scandal that Anthony and I ended up in this bunker together. We didn't know, you know, where we would go and be shunned. Um, that was that was that was really hard to live through, I have to say. And even though we had supportive family and friends, 
you know, what do they do? I mean, they're, they're so, they're so ashamed. The behavior was so embarrassing that there's not very much they can do aside from just being there. And that's, that's kind of, that is what happened to us. It's strange, Huma, hearing you talk, you know, I got to know Bernie Lewinsky and his wife, Barb, uh, you know, shortly after the scandal involving Monica Lewinsky, and she had the same experience. She was shunned. She was shamed. She tried to volunteer at a woman's prison in London. They wouldn't even let her do volunteer work because they didn't want it to get bad press. I'm curious if this experience with Anthony made you feel more empathetic towards someone like Monica Lewinsky and and with the benefit of time passing on and a real, I think, shift in in the way we view that whole Mm. situation. If if you've given that much thought. I do believe that my parents, one of the things um, that was inculcated in me when I was very young was this notion of radical empathy having my, you know, to be the daughter of a man who could go into, we could live in a monastery for a week to try and understand what other people believed. They always, you know, made us uh, want to feel what it's like to be in somebody else's shoes. Uh, and I and I do think that was a culture in Hillary land too. And absolutely, I mean, I think that this notion, I'm, I'm glad she's been able to tell her story, share her truth, Um, is having an experience at this stage in life. I think we're about the same age where she can be out in the world and, um, and, and share how painful what she went through was. I mean, it it, did talk about um, something that, you know, uh, was a huge moment in American history. I don't, I can only, I actually can't imagine what it must've felt like. To carry well, that. you can, I think, imagine a little bit given what little you've bit. been through, and and you didn't bit. feel. I mean, it just is. You're so loyal to Hillary, mm-hmm. and and so you didn't feel at all torn. I mean, this was such a complicated thing. You write a lot about this and about people questioning her decisions yeah. and how they could be perfectly understandable, and you know all the kind of incorrect theories about you know they have an arrangement and it's all mm-hmm. about politics. And, um, but I, I'm curious if, if, if sort of this reckoning about how Monica Lewinsky was treated, if you feel some, if you feel sort of almost divided loyalty in some ways, having gone through what you've gone through and, and, and being someone who does practice, practice radical empathy. I, uh, when I think about that time, I did, and as you say, I did end up writing a lot about it in the book. And in part, because there are some parts of my life that you just can't make up in that I, my, um, all of my professional movement in the Clinton White House marked these big moments in that investigation. I actually write about the first time I was in the residence was the the day uh, that President Clinton was testifying. I write about my very first advance was the morning the story broke. And here I was, um, fresh-faced, you know, 21-year-old. From my perspective, whatever I was watching on TV, and maybe this now sounds, you know, so crazy, when I was watching all of these developments on TV, I, it felt like an alternate universe because it didn't match what I was experiencing every day in my work. You know, every day we were getting up and doing something. And I, the minute the story broke when President Clinton told the truth, 
I felt as though this wall of protection around my boss, like I, she had so much stress. I was watching all of the incoming. So how could I operate? Well, the only way, and maybe the right word is compartmentalizing, right? Is the only way I could figure out how to move forward was to make Hillary Clinton's life easier. And that was to do my job perfectly. I don't think I understood anything about how she was feeling certainly what Monica was going through, I couldn't even comprehend because it was so far, you know, from my um, understanding. In hindsight, though, um, boy, we as a society did not know how to, when you see what she had to endure um, and what she went through, and obviously I witnessed what Hillary had to go through, the women (laughs) had to go through. It's, um, yeah, it's it's gut-wrenching. Obviously, I have a lot of empathy for um, what she had to go through. And I'm, I'm glad to see, I mean, from the outside, I don't know where I've never met her. Um, it, it seems as though she really is finding her voice and her space and her place in this world. And I, and I, of, I wish her well. I really do wish her well. A lot of lost years, though. A lot of lost years, yes. I want to ask you, Huma, about um, sort of le- the days leading up to 2016, which is something you also write about. And you write that you wrote in your journal um, after this, uh, James Comey announced this investigation to reopen uh, the investigation into Hillary's emails. Um, and that was after emails between you and Hillary were discovered on Anthony Anthony's laptop. And you write... I don't know how I'm going to survive this. Help me, God. Uh, you know, now looking back on it, Huma, I know that Hillary has written and spoken about her belief that of uh, the strong role this investigation played in, in her ultimate loss. Do you believe she would have won had it not been for that reopened investigation so close to Election Day? Yes, I do. You know, she wrote about it in, you know, in detail in what happened. And you look at, you know, in a, in a race that was this close, every little thing mattered. This was a big thing in the final 10 days. You saw the numbers tightening. uh, And, and, and actually the second announcement two days before, if anything, got, you know, the, the, the Trump supporters even more, um, uh, uh, motivated to go out. And so I think people who were trying to decide whether to go and vote for her or not didn't. Look, she won with, as you know, well, no, three more million more people voted for her, but those 77,000 people between those three states that we needed in these crucial states, we lost. I absolutely believe that. And I, I have, that is something I do have to carry to my grave. And that, that, that weighs heavily on me. And even in this moment of feeling a sense of liberation to share my truth. That is part of my truth. I do have to accept that. And, um, and it's never going to be easy for me to accept it, but I do believe it. Yeah. How do you, I mean, but, but do you direct your, your anger at James Comey? Uh, because obviously the damage was done. The investigation was closed, uh, prior to the election day. But I remember thinking, Oh, Oh, this is, this is going to really, really hurt. There's already already among some voters this feeling of distrust for whatever reason, whatever it was rooted in. Um, this is going to be like shaking a salt shaker into that wound. And I just felt, oh, this is going to tip people over. And it did. It did. 
And it felt it in that moment. It is why as, as the news came in and we were on that airplane and I just couldn't, I, you know, as I share and she shared, I just broke down on the plane because it was as much as I had tried to handle this situation, it was a shock. We didn't understand. And in part for me, Katie, what was so um, baffling is I write in the book when Hillary first announced for president and sitting in her conference room and going through these briefing papers as she was preparing to give a speech and seeing that um, the FBI had opened this investigation and they had asked senior staff members to provide information and they mentioned my name in the story, but I had not been contacted. And so I am that person who goes back to her office and I call a lawyer friend saying, it is being suggested that I'm searching for emails in my possession, but no one's caught, what can I do to help? How do I, you know, how do I participate? And so the thing that, you know, still doesn't make sense to me is why nobody would have picked up the phone and called and said, look, we found this. Can we look through it? Called my lawyer, called Anthony's lawyer, called. We would, of course, cooperate it. And to now know that there were other investigations going on that they chose about other people that they chose not to make public. Donald Trump. Donald Trump. Thank you very much. Because they didn't want to affect anything. To now say, well, oh, we assumed she was going to win and this, you know, needed to be, that's quite an, that's quite an assumption to make. Did you ever run into Jim Comey? Never run into him, never had a conversation with him. Uh, I've never had any- As Hillary? Not that I'm aware of. No, she hasn't. I would know. I would know. (laughs) No, (laughs) no, she hasn't. uh, She hasn't seen him since then. And, um. I, I've actually been asked, people have said, well, we heard that they tried to reach out or he tried to reach out. And I, I know the short answer is I, I will never understand, Katie, because I do believe it, it changed the course of American history. You, in your um, acknowledgments, as I mentioned, right, my son Jordan Zane is my reason for living, the reason there will always be laughter and joy, hope and promise, and above all, love. I have had so many words for Anthony Weiner. If you have read the book, you know many of them. In the end, though, I want to thank Anthony for two things. First and foremost, for our extraordinary son. And second, for giving me an experience where I felt like I was the most special person in any room. Perhaps because our moment of total bliss was so fleeting, it was all the more precious. So there's a lot of forgiveness in your heart. For Anthony, do you think you would ever reconcile or has that train left the station, as my mom would have said? That your mother is correct. The train left the station a long time ago. But I think in, in, um, when people say, do you regret, I wouldn't have my son, who is the most important thing, and he gave that to me. And so it's hard not to feel gratitude for that. And I know what it is like. I have not had a lot of love in my life in the, in the romantic sense. Um, but I had that with him and it was, it was pretty special and, um, and I felt very special. And so I, I wanted to acknowledge that and he's not perfect, but he has tried in his own way to be a good parent, a present, very a present parent. And so I did feel as though I should acknowledge him and I did. Well, Huma, your book is both and, uh, New York times bestseller. Congratulations on that. And, uh, And I really enjoyed talking to you as always. I don't think we've ever talked this much, even though I've known you for probably, what, 25 years at this point. 25 years, 25 years. I'm so happy to talk to you. Thank you for having me on. I've 
as I think you know, I'm a big admirer of yours for a long time. And so I've, I'm, I'm thrilled and thrilled to have been on the bestseller list along with you uh, and to read your incredible book and to be able to share my story the same time you're sharing yours. I'm so happy and hope we get together for coffee or dinner or lunch. I would really like that very much. Definitely call me. We'll make it happen. A huge thank you to Huma Abedin for spending time with me. Her New York Times bestselling memoir is called Both And. So go check it out. Next Question with Katie Couric is a production of iHeartMedia and Katie Couric Media. The executive producers are me, Katie Couric, and Courtney Litz. The supervising producer is Lauren Hansen, associate producers Derek Clements, Adriana Fazio, and Emily Pinto. The show is edited and mixed by Derek Clements. For more information about today's episode or to sign up for my morning newsletter, Wake Up Call, go to katiecouric.com. You can also find me at Katie Couric on Instagram and all my social media channels. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeartRadio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.